President Biden arrives in Japan for the G7 summit. The meeting is expected to focus on the global economy and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's Thursday, May 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Republicans demand tougher work requirements for people on federal aid programs as part of the talks over the debt ceiling. Plus, the latest from Pakistan and the imminent arrest of the country's former prime minister. Also this hour, Massachusetts's highest court takes aim at systemic racism in policing. Clearly, they have been motivated in a number of cases in the way of pushing back on the racial disparities in the criminal system. And how teacher-to-teacher mentoring is helping retain educators in remote parts of Alaska. In sports, Celtics lose, Red Sox win. Sunny in the 60s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Both President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are expressing cautious optimism as lawmakers work to resolve the debt ceiling dispute. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the two sides are up against a critical deadline to reach an agreement. White House and congressional staffers from both sides are working to find a compromise just weeks before the U.S. could default on its debt. Speaking at the Capitol on Wednesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy continued to defend a Republican-backed bill that raises the debt ceiling in exchange for deep cuts in government spending. The only question is whether we have a Biden default or not. It's the president himself. We passed something reasonable and sensible. All we say is let's spend what we were spending five months ago. President Biden says he's hoping to continue final negotiations when he returns from the G7 summit in Japan on Sunday. In the meantime, he plans to stay in regular contact with aides from both sides of the table. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Federal prosecutors have made a new allegation in the case of a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified documents. They say Jack Teixeira's superiors knew months before his arrest that he was improperly accessing government secrets. From member station WBUR in Boston, Allie Jarmanning has more. Federal prosecutors say Teixeira was admonished twice last fall for accessing classified information at Joint Base Cape Cod. He was told to cease and desist, but apparently didn't. In January, he was seen again looking at intelligence not related to his job. It's unclear if Teixeira was disciplined or investigated further. Two commanders of the unit were suspended after Teixeira's arrest last month, and the Air Force is investigating the unit more broadly. An Air Force spokesperson declined comment. A judge will decide on Friday whether Teixeira should remain in custody pending trial on charges under the Espionage Act. For NPR News, I'm Allie Jarmanning in Boston. A federal appeals court panel has heard arguments about whether the federal government correctly approved a common abortion pill for use. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin says the case is about whether mifepristone can be banned, even states where abortion is legal. Last November, a group of abortion rights opponents filed a complaint arguing that FDA should never have approved this medication more than 20 years ago and also shouldn't have expanded access to the drug in 2016 by changing the rules around who can prescribe it and allowing it to be dispensed by telehealth. Defending mifepristone was the Department of Justice representing the FDA and Danco Pharmaceuticals, which makes mifepristone. It's actually the only medication that the company makes. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reporting. The appeals court decision is not expected for weeks or months and will likely be appealed to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the abortion medication remains legal. 
This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo says he was never contacted during investigations into U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins. Those investigations released yesterday allege Rollins leaked Justice Department information in an effort to support Arroyo in last year's Suffolk District Attorney's race. Arroyo is not accused of any wrongdoing. Nearly half of schools in the Northeast report feeling understaffed right now. One challenge is too few applicants and too many teacher vacancies. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, one Massachusetts district is filling hard-to-staff positions by recruiting teachers from Brazil. Framingham's new recruitment strategy was developed to address a staffing shortage in the school system's Portuguese-English bilingual classrooms. School leaders say they're struggling to find teachers locally. Everton Vargas da Costa, the district's talent acquisition coordinator, says the district's sponsorship of H-1B work visas would open the door for experienced overseas teachers to stay in the U.S. long term. It's about the students, right? How to make them have the experience of having bilingual education of high quality of excellence. So we need to make those efforts. This school year, Framingham sponsored H-1B work visas for eight elementary school teachers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Climate change is one of the reasons behind the rough allergy season, and it's been bad this year. Dr. Alina Banerjee is the clinical director of allergy and immunology at Mass General Hospital. She says allergy seasons are 20 to 30 days longer now than they were in previous decades. The season is starting earlier, it's lasting longer, and we're actually seeing higher pollen counts in the spring season. So I think all of those factors together is really why we're seeing that the pollen and symptoms are worse. Banerjee says tree pollen should taper off in June, but then it'll be time for the grass pollen. The Worcester nonprofit Girls Inc. has a new leader two weeks after the organization shut down its programs to conduct an internal investigation into its leadership. The previous leaders were accused of creating a toxic workplace. Myron Parker Brass will take over as interim CEO. She's worked previously with Boston Public Schools and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering, farm-to-plate Caribbean-American meals made with fresh, locally sourced ingredients. Freshfoodgeneration.com. A rough start for the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. They lost to the Miami Heat 123-116 to last night at the Garden. Game two will be tomorrow night here in Boston. The Red Sox ended their homestand last night with a 12-3 win over the Seattle Mariners. The Sox are off tonight. They begin a West Coast road trip tomorrow in San Diego. A cold start today. It'll get sunny and temperatures will rise into the mid-60s. Clear overnight and it drops into the 40s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 70s, cloudy showers and 60s on Saturday. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 707. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com/npr. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. 
And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. President Biden is attending the G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan, to talk about Ukraine, nuclear nonproliferation, and deterring China. He's not attending a follow-up meeting in Australia with the leaders of Japan, India, and Australia. Biden says the political fight over the debt ceiling in the U.S. takes precedence over what's known as the Quad Security Meeting in Sydney. To discuss, Australia's former prime minister, now ambassador to the United States, Kevin Rudd joins us now. Good morning, Ambassador. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning, Leila. Thank you for having me. So what message does Biden postponing this trip send to Australia and the leaders of Japan and India? Well, any Australian uh, prime minister would uh, welcome a visit by a president of the United States. And of course, as Prime Minister Albanese of Australia has said, it's disappointing that the president wasn't able to make it this time. But look, we've been around for a very long time yeah. with America. This alliance of ours has been through some 15 um, Australian prime ministers and 14 American presidents. And I've got to say, as the new ambassador here in Washington, I think the relationship between the two of us is as robust and as intense as I've ever seen it uh, mm. across that span of history. So this is just one of those things that happens and we get the intensity of the debate on the future of the debt ceiling in the in the Congress. You know, I'm thinking about you describing such a robust relationship in this moment, and one of the regional focuses is, is courting India as a counterweight to China's influence in the region, right? Will that be a focus of this upcoming meeting, and will the U.S. absence hurt the effort? Well, the important thing about the Quad, which you mentioned in your intro, is that there will now be a Quad summit uh, held uh, in uh, Japan when President Biden is there. Uh, Prime Minister Modi will be visiting from India as a guest of Japan as a, uh, in the G7 summit. So too will Prime Minister um, Albanese from Australia. Mm -hmm. So the Quad agenda will proceed. The meeting will happen, though, not in Sydney, but uh, in Japan, either Hiroshima or Tokyo, I'm not sure which. And the content of the agenda will roll out. And this is very important in continuing to provide further strategic balance in the wider Indo-Pacific region, quite apart from the details of the agenda on climate, on energy, uh, on infrastructure, on critical minerals, and the things that matter to the peoples of the wider region. How do you think the postponing of uh, the Sydney visit is being viewed, and Papua New Guinea is being viewed from Beijing? Beijing? Well, the Chinese, within their own um, view, as they look at the wider Indo-Pacific region, will frankly see a whole range of developing uh, US and allied assets. It's not just um, you know, a single visit that um, sums up the totality of uh, the engagement of US and allied diplomacy over the last two and a half years. Mm -hmm. You see, look most recently at the great success in Korean uh, American relations as a result of President Yoon's visit to Washington, the Kishida relationship with President Biden and Japan over national security is the closest I've ever seen it. The Philippines now back very much in the alliance fold uh, with the reopening of American bases there. And the Pacific Islands, what do I see? I see as an expanding US diplomatic footprint, growing US aid, and on the back of that, of course, Australia still being by far and above the dominant aid provider across the Pacific Island nations, all 16 of them. So this is just a very small thing in the scheme of things, to be quite honest. In the bigger picture, though, are you concerned that the U.S. presence isn't big enough? I mean, 
Over the past couple decades, it feels like the region's issues seem to get moved to the back burner when other things come up. The war in Ukraine, crises in the Middle East, in this case, a crisis here in the U.S. Well, if I look at the last um, couple of years, President Biden has already been in the region a number of times. Mm -hmm. He's been in Korea. He's been in Japan. He's been in Cambodia. He's been in Indonesia. The bottom line is the fabric of these overall relationships at the military level, um, at the level of um, collaboration in critical areas of energy, of infrastructure and renewable energy in particular, this is um, probably stronger than I've ever seen it. And I began life as a career diplomat back in the 80s. So I think we need to take a step back, put, pull out our smelling salts and say, uh, look, um, uh, the postponement of a presidential visit in the scheme of all this is quite small. Kevin Rudd is Australia's former prime minister, now ambassador to the U.S. Ambassador, thank you so much for taking the time. Good to be with you on the program. Montana has become the first state to ban TikTok. It's seen as a test case as other states and Washington debate the future of the hit video sharing app. There are many questions, like how's the ban going to work? Is it even legal? On the app, Montana-based creators have started saying their goodbyes, promoting other social media platforms. I have my YouTube linked, and I'm also going to start an Instagram this summer. I am going to keep posting. I do have a YouTube account. See ya. I'll be on YouTube. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us now to discuss all this. Uh, Bobby, can an app be banned in a state? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so supporters of the bill point to online gambling. They say online gambling sites are blocked in states where it's illegal. It is possible to design a digital firewall, you know, something known as a geofence, to prohibit a site or app from being accessed within a state. And that's what Montana is trying to do here, right? With stiff penalties, the law makes it illegal to download TikTok, and any entity that provides access to TikTok, like an app store, could be fined up to $10,000 a day for making TikTok available. Now, some experts say it's going to be pretty tough to enforce this ban, but, you know, they have some time to work out the kinks because the law doesn't go into effect until January. But what got Montana to this place, banning TikTok? Yeah, well, Montana and dozens of other states have shared a concern that many in Washington have with TikTok, and it's been described to me as the China problem, right? TikTok's parent company is ByteDance, which is based in Beijing, and state and federal officials fear that the Chinese government could request the data of millions of Americans and then use that data to try to influence the views of Americans or spy on U.S. citizens. So because of this fear, Montana and many other states banned TikTok on government-issued devices. We heard a lot about that. But what happened yesterday, the governor signing a bill outright banning TikTok within the state's borders, I mean, that A is so much more. It's a much more drastic step. Yeah, safe for me to say that TikTok will be fighting this? Oh, yeah. It's widely expected that it will be in the court soon. TikTok says the ban is an unconstitutional violation of Americans' free speech rights. And, you know, groups like the ACLU are backing TikTok's fight. The ACLU says the government can't impose a total ban on a social media platform unless there is an immediate harm to national security. And if TikTok and the ACLU are to be believed, you know, they say there just is not enough evidence to support the idea that TikTok is a threat to national security. Well, what is the evidence that it would pose a threat? 
Yeah, there isn't any direct evidence that the Chinese government has ever accessed TikTok user data, but critics of TikTok point to intelligence laws in China that allow the government kind of unfettered access to a company's customer records. On top of that, ByteDance has used its other social media apps in China to amplify and promote stories pushing the official Chinese government line. So there's a fear that they might do that with TikTok. All right, so Montana banning TikTok. Uh, has the Biden White House made any decision on TikTok? Yeah, you know, the White House officials have threatened to ban TikTok nationally unless ByteDance finds an American buyer. But negotiations are kind of at a standstill right now. Um, you know, TikTok, for its part, says it has a new data security plan that will keep Americans' data outside of the reach of Chinese authorities, but Biden officials are just not convinced. And A, as these talks continue between the White House and TikTok, uh, you can bet that White House officials will be watching to see how this Montana case plays out in federal courts. We would never ban NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen. Bobby, talk again soon. <laughs> I'd hope not. Thanks, Abe. In Jacksonville, Florida, a Democrat beat the mayoral candidate backed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis this week. As Claire Huddles with member station WJCT reports, it was an upset in a city that has been a Republican stronghold. Donna Deegan will be the first female mayor of Jacksonville. I made a decision when I got into this race that no matter what happened, no matter what the landscape looked like, we were going to lead with love over fear. The former TV anchor beat DeSantis-backed Republican Daniel Davis by four points. She's one of just two Democrats elected mayor in the North Florida city in the past 30 years. She attributes her win to independents and voters who cross party lines. Every time a reporter would say to me, well, what do you think about Democratic turnout? I would say, I want Democrats to turn out. I also want Republicans and independents to turn out and vote for me because we can't lead this city with one party, we can't. Republicans led turnout by about 7,000 votes, but Deegan still won. Davis did not expect to lose. Obviously, we're still kind of in shock of the results and, and want to make sure that we understand that this doesn't define us as a family. Jacksonville University political scientist Rick Mullaney says the credit for the win may go to Deegan herself. In the end, I think the outcome is more attributable to Donna Deegan's positive campaign, her energy, and the homework she did in mastering a lot of different substantive policy issues. But no one contests the win was an upset. Jacksonville City Council member Randy DeFore was one of a handful of prominent Republicans who crossed party lines to endorse Deegan. She says her win is a rejection of the city's longstanding Republican power players. I don't think a lot of people thought it was possible. I think people put party politics aside and said, we need to stand up and do what's right and best for our community. And that means we need to vote for Donna Deegan. Florida Democrats were quick to call it a massive victory. In a statement, they celebrated, saying flipping Florida's geographically largest and historically red district to blue challenges the growing control Republicans have over Florida politics. For NPR News, I'm Claire Heddles in Jacksonville.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in three minutes on Morning Edition, mentoring is one way schools can hold on to new teachers and prevent staff shortages. We follow one mentor in Alaska working with some of the state's most remote districts. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, icaboston.org. Commercial real estate is cratering. More than 20% of office space vacant in cities like Los Angeles and Chicago as workers stay remote. Nationwide, vacancy rates are higher than they were at the height of the 2008 financial crisis. We've had a ton of busts since the 1980s, but what we're seeing right now is something that we really haven't seen in decades at all. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As you're listening to WBUR this morning, keep in mind we also offer a quick read of all the news that matters in Boston and beyond in your email inbox. Subscribe to WBUR today at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Sunny with a high around 65 today. We'll have clear skies tonight and temperatures fall to a low around 46. Tomorrow we end the week with a mostly sunny day and a high near 72. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. In many school districts, teachers are in short supply. That's especially true in small, isolated districts, the kind that are easy to find in Alaska. There, hiring teachers is only half the battle. Keeping them is hard, too. But research shows there is a powerful thing schools can do to retain teachers. Pair them up with veteran teacher mentors. NPR's Corey Turner has the story of one effort to get mentors out to some of a Alaska's most remote schools. Outside Chivak School in western Alaska, the lake is ice and the snowy tundra unfurls to the Bering Sea. Pick one. Which one did you want? This one or this one? But that doesn't stop new first grade teacher Amelia Tulim from trying to lighten the mood with a spring egg hunt. We need to give Jackson one. Amelia grew up in Chivak, an Alaska native community and home to the Chupik people. And she says she loved her third grade teacher. She made learning fun. I remember sitting in my desk and looking right at her and telling myself, one day that's going to be you. You're going to make learning fun. And she is. But being a new teacher is also tough. I feel like with first year teachers, it's hard. 
The long hours of grading and lesson prep can be exhausting, but poverty is also a challenge in Chivac. It can cast a shadow in the classroom and require that teachers do far more than teach. There's also the long snowy winters, though Amelia's used to those. Yeah, we only have three cars here. The rest are ATVs and snowmobiles. As is true across much of the U.S., Alaska's rural and remote communities are hardest hit by these teacher shortages. They lose roughly one in four teachers every year. And that's where Ed Sotelo comes in. Okay, so we finally are going to be flying out to Chibac. The uh, flight was canceled this morning due to volcanic ash that was coming from Russia. Ed is one of 15 retired teachers who now work as official mentors for something called the Alaska Statewide Mentor Project. All right, welcome to Chivac, everybody. It's been around for 20 years and even survived being gutted by statewide budget cuts several years ago. Seeing the impact the mentors were having on their teachers, school districts themselves stepped in to fund the project. Sorry, we don't just take, okay? Once a month. Ed takes three planes from his home in Homer, Alaska, to get to Amelia's classroom. You asked for it. Can I take this I feel like my classroom management has gotten better and... I have to agree with you. Not that it was bad. I was impressed when I first came. Ed knows precisely how hard it can be to begin teaching in a small, remote community like Chivac. In 1984, he left Arizona with his wife and daughter, who was in kindergarten, to take a better paying teaching job in Gamble, Alaska. Probably one of the most remote areas in the state. It's this little island right between Nome and Siberia. Flying in, they were feeling good. They'd already made friends with another new teacher on the plane. But the wind was so brutal, the pilot had to land the plane sideways. They're called crab landings. So the rear end would slam to the ground, literally. And they're just really rough landings. As they grabbed their life's belongings and hurried off the plane, Ed remembers the other new teacher refusing to go. And she just hung on to that seat, says, I can't do it. I just can't get off this plane. I just want to go home. And so she did. But Ed Sotelo and his family stayed. Now 70, he's retired from teaching, but far from retired. Ah, what a beautiful day. Below zero? In his 14th year as a mentor, Ed travels on a shoestring budget and even packs his own food. I sleep in the library. I've got a pad that I take everywhere and little sleeping bag that goes down to, you know, below freezing. Ed does all sorts of things on these monthly visits. He observes Amelia teach and offers feedback. If you were to do that class over again, the one we just did, how would you do that differently? Here they debrief after a recent lesson she taught making puppets. I think I would probably get the string cut ready instead of walk around. Okay, so you would have things a little more prepared. Yes. One of Amelia's great strengths is being able to put her children at ease. Just making them laugh. I'll like dance up there. And they'll be like, no, like just a little, yeah, go get it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And they're like, no. And then they start laughing. I'm like, okay, pay attention. Amelia and Ed also talk lesson planning, classroom management, and her least favorite subject. How much later are you grading? <laughs> later. <laughs> 
Some of the rookie teachers he works with are outsiders, like he was, but some are homegrown, like Amelia, and he encourages her to work the Chupik culture she shares with her students into her lessons. One example, her reading materials included references to farming. They include cows. Do we have cows around here? Like, no, we don't. So Amelia asked the kids, what animals do we have? Suddenly, they were engaged. Ducks, said one. Moose, said another. Ed also encourages her to reflect on her practice overall. Sometimes, Amelia tells him, she worries about how important first grade is, getting her children on the path toward reading and writing. I'm stressed. (laughs) There's a balance. Some days it's stressful. Some days it's like a happy feeling. But then the kids make it worth it. You see their smile. You hear their laugh. You you see that little aha. You see that little light bulb go. Like that makes it worth it. Ed reassures her. She's doing really well. Finding that balance is tough. Mm -hmm. That's a great success. And when Amelia reflects back on the year, she's grateful for his visits. So I was nervous at the beginning, but towards the end, not only our relationship grew, but I feel like so did my teaching. After his last visit, Ed Sotelo packs up his sleeping bag and rides a snow machine back over the frozen lake to the airfield, where he catches a plane to another remote village. Okay, so I'm just uh, leaving Chivac, heading out to uh, Hoover Bay. I'm going to be out there for a day. He'll spend the next 24 hours with another new teacher and then head home. It's a lot of coming and going and the occasional rough landing, but it's worth it, he says, if he's the only one doing the leaving. Corey Turner, NPR News. This is NPR News. Welcome to Thursday. You're with WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, we hear about the preparations for runoff presidential elections in Turkey, in which incumbent Recep Tayyip Erdogan faces his toughest challenge in decades. It's 729. Coming to City Space on Monday, June 5th, New York Times cooking writer Hetty McKinnon. She'll discuss her new cookbook, Tender Heart. It's an ode to vegetables and family. Tickets are at WBUR.org org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine is expected to dominate this week's G7 summit in Japan. Earlier today, President Biden spoke about the nearly 15-month war as he stood alongside Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in Hiroshima. We stand up for the shared values, including supporting the brave people of Ukraine as they defend their sovereign territory and holding Russia accountable for its brutal aggression. Ahead of the summit, Russian forces fired more cruise missiles at targets in Ukraine, including ones in Kyiv and Odessa. Police in Pakistan continue to surround the home of the country's former prime minister, Imran Khan. He's been given a 24-hour deadline to hand over suspects believed to be inside Khan's house. 
Those suspects are wanted as a result of violent protests over Khan's recent arrest and subsequent clashes with security forces. NPR's Dia Hadid is in Islamabad. A senior government official warns they'll storm Khan's home after a deadline ends this afternoon and Khan is telling media to come and film it. The fear is this could ignite more violence in Pakistan, like what happened last week when paramilitary forces briefly detained Khan. That triggered unprecedented attacks by protesters on army installations. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The man accused in the murder of a boy that led to an investigation into the state's foster care system is due in court today. Alberto Sierra is charged with the murder of Jeremiah Oliver. Oliver was five years old when he vanished in 2013. His body was found months later. Oliver's family had been under the supervision of the Department of Children and Families. His death led to the resignations of several leaders at DCF. Senator Ed Markey is calling for intervention to address the impacts of social media on children. He reintroduced a bill that would place tighter regulations on social media companies to protect teens from harmful content. It's unbelievable. One in three teenage girls contemplated suicide last year. Uh, Social media is implicated. It's an accessory uh, to this tragedy that we're seeing in our country, and we have to do something. We need, a, we need a teenage privacy bill of rights online. We just have to pass one this year. The Children and Teens Online Privacy Protection Act would be an update to a law Markey introduced in 1998. The birthday of civil rights icon Malcolm X could soon become a municipal holiday in Boston. The city council unanimously approved a resolution yesterday to do so. His birthday is May 19th. That's tomorrow. Malcolm X moved to Roxbury in the 1940s, and he spent much of his life here. The resolution still needs final approval by Mayor Michelle Wu. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. The Celtics lost to the Miami Heat 123-116 to last night at the Garden. Game two of their playoff series will be tomorrow night. Last night at Fenway, the Red Sox beat the Seattle Mariners 12-3. to Clear skies with highs in the mid-60s today. It falls to the mid-40s tonight. Then we warm back up into the low 70s tomorrow under mostly sunny skies. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at 733. Your WB Warm. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. In Turkey, the main opposition party is contesting results from thousands of ballot boxes in Sunday's presidential election. 
Barring any unexpected changes, incumbent President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and opposition candidate Kamal Kilijarolu are heading for a runoff on May 28th. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports that Kilijarolu backers are scrambling to figure out how to improve his chances. Expectations were high among opposition voters that Sunday's election would bring an end to Erdogan's two decades in power. Instead, the incumbent nearly won in the first round. Not long after, opposition candidate Kamal Kilic Darolu released an angry video saying, I am still here, I'm still here. He also put his hand on his heart and said, you are still here too. In Istanbul, where support for Kilic Darolu was strong, some voters are scratching their heads. 50-year-old Murat Yaman said his reaction to the first round was a mix of disappointment and despair. He says maybe he'll just give up on politics for a while. I don't have any hope for the future. I am not optimistic. My rent is due for a raise in August. How much more will my landlord ask? That's what I'll think about. He says after allowing himself to dream of a new political era for Turkey, he thinks it's time to focus on his immediate problems, most of which are financial. When I go to the market tomorrow, how much will it cost me? That's all I can think of. We can't make five-year plans. We can only make monthly plans. And I have no hope. Analyst and political consultant Selim Koru says the opposition actually ran a fairly good campaign. Unfortunately for them, he says, they bet heavily that the economy would be the dominant issue in the race. And it wasn't. Because the government campaigned on a heavily nationalistic platform. And it turns out that voters cared much more about that than they cared about, say, the economy. 45-year-old Oktay Gerbuz wasn't shocked by Erdogan's strong showing. He was pleased to see that Erdogan still has so much support, as do the ruling party lawmakers who maintain their grip on Turkey's parliament. Gerbuz thinks things can only get better from here. In the second round, our chief will win again, with 58 to 60 percent of the vote for sure. Because you can tell how strong they are from the results. They also won the majority in the parliament. When asked why he thought Erdogan didn't achieve a win outright on Sunday, Gribu shrugs and says it didn't really surprise him. Why didn't he take it? Because the opposition was in full unity. And of course, Istanbul's cost of living and rents are very high. And also there was fatigue. After 21 years in power, it's not possible to avoid wearing down a little. He also says if anyone can revive Turkey's sagging economy, it's Erdogan. Many economists have said Erdogan bears a sizable share of the blame for the economy's slump. Looking ahead to the May 28th runoff, analyst Selim Koru says the opposition's goal has to be damage control, because Erdogan's goal is not just a win now, but to have a big majority to make it easier to enact his agenda. He wants a comfortable supermajority, something akin to what Putin has in Russia. So the opposition's main goal has to be about denying him too big of a majority. But the bottom line for many here is that, absent a very different vote in round two, Erdogan looks to be in the driver's seat in his bid for another term. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. With no deal on raising the federal debt ceiling and on the edge of a possible default, Democrats are pursuing other options. Among them, a long-shot procedural move to force a vote to raise the debt ceiling. Meanwhile, Democrats are urging President Biden to reject Republican demands for tougher work requirements for federal aid programs. GOP lawmakers argue the requirements would lift people out of poverty. I spoke with Rebecca Vallis about that proposal. She's a senior fellow at the left-leaning Century Foundation. 
they call them work requirements. But the dirty little secret about these proposals is they have nothing to do with actually helping anyone work. Research shows that having health insurance and adequate food is associated not only with better health, but also with increased work capacity. And that ends up translating into higher wages and earnings. Um, what they're actually about is using bureaucracy to strip basic assistance from struggling workers and families by wrapping them up in red tape. Um, I'm a former legal aid lawyer. I often refer to these kinds of proposals as death by a thousand paper cuts. So what these proposals do is they strip away basic assistance like food and housing or health care away from people who aren't able to supply proof of their work hours or proof that they're exempt from their requirements. So take, for example, the state of Arkansas. Back in 2018, under then-President Trump's effort to strip Medicaid away from people who couldn't find work as part of his larger effort to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, some 18,000 people lost health coverage in Arkansas within just months of the state implementing that policy in 2018. Political scientists have a term for this. It's called bureaucratic disentitlement, taking basic assistance away from people by heaping ridiculous amounts of bureaucracy on them. President Biden has supported work requirements for federal benefits in the past. 1996, he was in the U.S. Senate. That's when Congress passed legislation uh, that uh, reshaped the American welfare system. Here he is on the Senate floor at the time uh, talking about an amendment that ultimately did not pass. The Biden specter bill says that anyone who wants to receive welfare must sign an individual responsibility contract so that they are forced to agree up front to the conditions placed on receiving the benefit and so that they will have a, a plan from day one on how to get themselves off of welfare. Now, Rebecca, I know that was a long time ago. It was 1996. But he did make those comments. He did hold those beliefs back then. Does that signal to you at all that President Biden could once again support them in order to make a deal with Republicans? Yeah, I have to say, I really appreciate that the White House appears to be holding strong on behalf of struggling workers and families in the context of this debt ceiling hostage situation. President Biden has made very clear he would reject any deal that increases poverty in the United States. And um, it's also been incredibly heartening to hear House Speaker Jeffries similarly make clear that these types of proposals are a non-starter with Democrats. Let's be clear about what is actually happening in Washington right now. House Republicans are calling to bankrupt the country if Democrats in Congress and in the White House don't agree to take food and health care away from hundreds of thousands of struggling people. That is the political football that's being tossed around in Washington right now. Rebecca Vallis is a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Rebecca, thanks. Thanks so much. This is NPR News. 
It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, Massachusetts' highest court has ruled that people charged with a crime after a stop and frisk can challenge the charges on the grounds of racial bias. We'll talk about the implications of the ruling. Mid-60s today under sunny skies. It stays clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Friday in the low 70s. Right now, it's 45 degrees in Boston at 742. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com And the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Some rideshare drivers for companies like Uber and Lyft say they're considering another ballot measure effort to protect their status as independent contractors. A similar ballot measure effort was tossed by a judge last year before it could make it onto the ballot. Some of the rideshare companies want to reclassify drivers as employees. Opponents of that believe it would come with too many restrictions. Boston-based water tech company Gradient is the first local company to become a so-called unicorn this year. That means it's valued at more than $1 billion. Gradient says it hopes to use new funding to further expand in Europe and the Middle East. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Pedestrians in Massachusetts who were stopped, frisked, and arrested by police may now have grounds on which to challenge the charges. The state's highest court ruled earlier this week that defendants can challenge those charges on the grounds of racial bias. Boston University law professor Jerry Leonard joins me now to talk about this ruling, and we should note that BU holds WBUR's broadcast license. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. So big question to start out with, what are the implications of this ruling? So the the implications of this ruling um, in in the abstract makes it a little bit easier to challenge one's prosecution for any offense that you're charged with by showing that the police selected you as a target of investigation based in part on your race. And you're allowed to do this even though the police may have had a perfectly fair reason, what the law calls reasonable suspicion, to stop you, and even though they, in fact, discovered adequate evidence of your crime. What do we know about what defendants who allege racial discrimination by police have to show in order for judges to overturn charges? The growth in the law in this case is that you can bring relatively little evidence of racial discrimination and sort of shift the burden to the state to prove that the officers in the case were not actually acting on the basis of race. So this case itself, these facts are not great facts for showing racial motivation because these defendants were in fact stopped because they were black, but because the police were told that the description of the shooters was two young black males in black hoodies. 
So it's not wrong to be looking for black males when that's the description. There are other kinds of cases where it would be much easier to show racial motivation. So you don't have a description of the defendant's as one racial identity or another. But the problem is that you don't get such clean cases very often. So the ruling this week is based on an earlier decision. The SJC ruled in 2020 that drivers have the right to challenge charges based on racial discrimination. So could that ruling and this one, could they apply to other types of searches beyond those of pedestrians and drivers? One of the strong points in this ruling is that it is not just an extension from car stops to pedestrian stops, which seems like a, a fairly obvious extension, but the court makes a point of saying that this applies to police investigations generally. What it also points out, though, is that this kind of ruling does not apply, for example, to prosecutors. The courts presume that prosecutors behave appropriately in good faith in all their decision-making. The doctrine here does make an important move with respect to the police, subjecting all police investigation to this new rule in principle. But it really draws a hard line around that when we know that there are questions about prosecution. What does this decision say about the direction the SJC is moving in recent years when it comes to policing and race? For all my skepticism of what the SJC is capable of doing in addressing systemic problems, Clearly, they have been motivated in a number of cases to try and do what they can in the way of pushing back on the racial disparities embedded in the criminal system as it is. The SJC has uh, taken a road quite distinct from that of the Supreme Court. The actual systemic effects of the court's holdings uh, are to be seen, and I'm a little skeptical that, that they can really have a systemic effect. Jerry Leonard is a Boston University law professor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You are one day closer to Friday with WBUR. Coming up in just a couple of minutes on Morning Edition, BU alum Andy Cohen talks about reality TV and his new book about being a dad. And at 810, how students graduating from the new College of Florida are fighting back against their school's takeover by appointees of Governor Ron DeSantis. It's 749. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. From Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Federal prosecutors say the superiors of Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira knew he was improperly accessing top-secret information. President Biden is in Japan for the G7 summit, where he's expected to discuss the global economy and the war on Ukraine. And Pakistan's former prime minister is refusing to go into exile as security forces threaten to storm his home and arrest him. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Another cool day today with temperatures rising only to the mid-60s, but it'll be sunny. Skies stay clear tonight and it falls to the mid-40s. Tomorrow we warm back up a bit to the low 70s. It'll be mostly sunny. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Layla Falden. Even if you don't watch The Real Housewives of Pick a Franchise, you've probably heard some of the housewife taglines. Potomac put me on a pedestal, and the view is spectacular. I'm the ultimate Southern belle. I get what I want. I don't have to buy it, because I already own it. Today, love them or hate them, they're pop culture icons. And the man who started it all is Andy Cohen. He created the first show in 2006, The Real Housewives of Orange County. And today, there are 10 more, including one in Dubai. Cohen is out with his fifth book, The Daddy Diaries, The Year I Grew Up. In it, he name drops and writes about being a dad. But we start our conversation with a confession from me. So listen, I'm going to out myself here. You know, people maybe think of me as a serious journalist. I've covered a lot of the world. Right. But I might be the biggest Real Housewives fan you've ever met because when I moved to Iraq in 2006, that was also the year you had your first season of The Real Housewives of Orange County. Yes. And that became my escape. So we would cover bombings and sectarian killings and really terrible, terrible things all day. And at night, I don't know if it was legal, but it was a war. I'm going to excuse myself here. I would stream these shows because they were absolute escape. These messy, rich, unattainable women yes. that I couldn't relate to at all, but I was like, what is happening? But interestingly enough, I bet, first of all, I love that. And I meet so many people who come up to me and say, I'm a lawyer, so don't judge me. But I love the house. I'm like, I know a lot of smart people watch You're these shows. You're like all shows. the people who- <laughs> Right, you know, so there's that. But also I hear from more people who just, it brings them an escape. And yeah. who say- I have been dealing with cancer for years, or I fight with my daughter about everything. We barely have a relationship, but our safe space is the housewives because we can talk about it and have fun. And that's escapism. And I will also say, I think that the reason that it's still on, not that you asked, I think we love to judge human behavior. I think it's sociology of the rich or nouveau riche. Did you think, though, like, you'd still be doing this if you'd have... No way. No. It's wild. Your name is now tied forever to the rise of reality TV. And whether they love it or hate it, even me, who loves it, have mixed feelings about what it's done to us as a society. Yeah. Especially when you talk about the way women are presented. Is it good to have women pitted against each other, really messy, 
Do you think about that? I do. I think about it all the time. I talked to Gloria Steinem about it, and she called it a minstrel show for women. Mm. She hates it. And I said to her, I bet you haven't watched it, because on the converse, Roxane Gay and Camille Paglia and many other feminists, and I am a feminist as well, and I think it is a great feminist show. There are more women over 50 building brands, doing exactly what they want to do. The Real Outsides of New York, I think, is the great feminist tableau. And I know you think I'm crazy, but the way if you look at Luann and Sonia and Ramona and how they are not dependent on men, they are in charge of their sexuality, they're vibrant, they're beautiful. Yes, they misbehave. Yes, they're wild, whatever, but they're living their best life truly in their own moment. And I think there's a beauty in that. So, would you ever... No. No. You would never go on a reality show? I wouldn't. You know, this book and my former diaries are as close to being on a reality show because I am bringing you inside my life in a very intimate way. Yeah. And I am very vulnerable in parts of this book about my own insecurities about everything. The reason this is my reality show is that I'm in control of the edit. Do people come to you who are on these shows and are angry with you for how they're sure. portrayed? Or... Oh, yeah. All the time. What do you tell them? I mean, has anybody ever been say, like, you I'm ruined sorry, my life? Or, you know? Yeah. No, no one said you've ruined my life. I mean, people have to remember everyone here signed up for it. Yeah. There's no Real Housewives draft. Oh, my God. I got a letter. I've been drafted into the Housewives. Gotta serve my time. I'm sorry, family. But here I go. And they are compensated for it. So I think everyone in one way or another comes out a winner. Do your kids, I mean, Ben maybe is old enough now. Do your kids know what you do? I think he knows that I have a show. But interestingly enough, I think he thinks everyone has a show. Maybe he thinks becoming an adult is like you get become an adult and then you're on TV and you have shows. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. (laughs) So what is it about this part of your life, being a dad, that has changed you? Everything has changed. My access has changed. My priorities have changed. The way I live my life every day, starting with my wake-up call, which this morning was at like 4.30 from my daughter. And they call it singing, but is it singing? What do you mean? Like, I don't think that's singing. Yeah, that's not singing. (laughs) I'm not a But it's making noises. But they call it singing. And I'm like, she's not singing. She's making very irritating noises right now in her crib that are keeping me awake. And I had it under control with one kid, but when Lucy was born, that's really when it all got serious. It's interesting. I go to a progressive, Ben goes to a progressive nursery school in New York City. Mm -hmm. I'm the only single parent, and I'm the only gay dad. Really? Yeah. And so it hit me in different ways this year. Uh... We were at a birthday party for a friend of his at a playground, and all of a sudden the sprinklers went on, and all the moms suddenly had changes of clothes for the kids so they could run around in the sprinklers. And Ben didn't, and he was the only child who couldn't play in the sprinklers. And I got to tell you something. I I cried when I got home. I'm getting emotional now. Like I just felt so just like... Maybe you don't know what you're doing. And by the way, Ben didn't care. It was fine. You know what I mean? But I care. But also, maybe you're a normal human being who's not going to channel. And I am, but it just, 
It just really hit me in various moments. And the fellowship of other gay dads is so valuable to me and the fellowship of other single parents in ways I never expected. You know, it's just, it's life and it's great. So what's next for your media empire? I mean, isn't this, this enough? Isn't this enough? I know the what's next question I mean, yeah, is actually I mean, annoying. Honestly, <laughs> is there more that I need to be doing? I think maybe less. You know, I know. You know, I always people say, what do you want to do next? And it sounds bad, but I always say, I'm good. I'm really good. Andy Cohen, thank you so much. Such thank a you so much. I cried. Aw, oh, this was so fun for me. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. It's a cold but sunny morning in Boston. We'll have temperatures in the mid-60s today. Tonight, mid-40s under clear skies. Right now, it's 45 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Senior Medicare Patrol. Detect, protect, and report health care errors, fraud, and abuse. Be an engaged health care consumer. If you suspect fraud, visit MedicareOutreach.org. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Massachusetts Air National Guard superiors allegedly knew months before his arrest that Airman Jack Deshera was improperly accessing top-secret information. It's Thursday, May 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, President Biden and other G7 leaders meeting in Japan are expected to discuss the way China is punishing countries that don't embrace its foreign policy objectives. And those countries are often reluctant to take China on in fear of retribution and escalation. Also this hour, the future of artificial intelligence in Hollywood. Plus... Realize we're going to have to recruit overseas because we cannot find that talent here. How one Massachusetts school district is seeking to ease a teacher shortage. In sports, Celtics lose, Red Sox win, sunny in the 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has arrived in Japan to attend the summit of the Group of Seven Industrialized Nations. He's already had a bilateral meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Biden told the Japanese leader they'll discuss the war in Ukraine and joint efforts to keep the Indo-Pacific region open and safe. As you said back in January when you were at the White House, I think the quote is, we face the most, one of the most complex environments in recent history security environments. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. But I'm proud that the United States and Japan are facing it together. Biden will stay in Japan until Sunday. Then he'll return home quickly to oversee negotiations with Republicans on the debt ceiling crisis. The CEOs of some of the biggest banks are scheduled to meet with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen today. As NPR's David Gura reports, at the top of the agenda is the debt ceiling and the potential consequences of a federal government default. 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is expected to tell bank executives what she's been saying to Congress, that the U.S. may be unable to pay its bills in a matter of weeks if lawmakers don't raise the debt limit. This meeting, with a group that includes the CEOs of Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase, along with the heads of several larger regional lenders, has been on the books for a while now, but its focus has narrowed. This week, business leaders have been sounding the alarm. In a letter to President Biden and congressional leadership, more than 100 executives called for a deal. A default, they said, cannot be allowed to happen. David Gura, NPR News. New York. Officials in Ukraine say Russia has bombed parts of their country again. This time, they say Russia fired missiles from the Caspian Sea region. There are casualties reported in the southern city of Odessa. Russian missiles were also fired at the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, but Ukraine says all of those missiles were shot down. A man convicted of killing eight people and injuring many more has been sentenced to life in prison by a federal court. From member station WNYC, Samantha Max reports the man drove a truck into a crowd of people on a New York City bike path in 2017. The courtroom was packed for the day-long sentencing hearing for Seifulo Saipov. More than a dozen survivors and loved ones of the deceased read statements, often through tears. They called Saipov a monster and a coward. Saipov, who was sentenced to multiple life terms and an additional 260 years, had also faced the possibility of the death penalty, which is still legal on the federal level. When it was Saipov's turn to speak, he did not apologize. Instead, he gave a lengthy speech about Islam and praised Allah. The judge said he hoped Saipov would one day feel remorse. Saipov is expected to serve out his sentence in a highly secure prison in Colorado. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in New York. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Massachusetts Air National Guard superiors knew months before his arrest that Airman Jack Teixeira was improperly accessing top-secret information. That's according to a new court filing by federal prosecutors. Teixeira is awaiting trial on charges of leaking classified documents online. And as WBUR's Ali Jarmanning reports, prosecutors want to keep him, keep him in custody until his trial. The court filing says Teixeira was caught twice, in September and October, taking notes on classified information in a secure facility. He was told by his superiors to stop. But according to prosecutors, he didn't. In January, he was seen again accessing top-secret information that wasn't related to his job. It's unclear if Air National Guard commanders took any steps to investigate Teixeira further or discipline him. Shortly after Teixeira's arrest last month, two Unnamed commanders in his unit were suspended, and his unit was taken off its intelligence mission as the Air Force conducts a broader investigation. A detention hearing is scheduled for tomorrow. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins will not litigate the accusations against her that led to her resignation. Rollins's attorney calls most of the violations cited by federal investigators minor. WBOR's Deborah Becker reports. Rollins' lawyer says the U.S. attorney wanted to put an end to the matter before it overwhelmed her office. Federal investigations found Rollins violated ethics laws by engaging in political activity. For one, they say, Rollins leaked information from her office to try to influence an election for Suffolk County District Attorney. Former federal prosecutor Brad Bailey says the Justice Department has strict rules for its prosecutors. You want them to send a message that politics 
partisanship has nothing to do with their decision making. And that's why she had no choice but to resign. Rollins' first assistant is expected to lead the office until the president makes a new appointment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Healy says the state is now willing to spend up to $700 million to replace the Cape Cod bridges. That would be only part of the cost to replace the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. The rest would need to come from the federal government. Previous funding requests have been rejected, but state officials say they're still talking with the feds. The state fire marshal says a number of brush fires in Lynn were intentionally set. Investigators say at least eight fires were set in the last week. They burned more than 400 acres of land near the Lynn Woods. Wildfire danger has been high in the region lately because of dry conditions and strong winds. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Food Generation Restaurant providing drop-off corporate and community catering of farm-to-plate Caribbean-American fare, freshfoodgeneration.com, and the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, providing an industry-aligned curriculum, on-campus, online, or hybrid, bc.edu msae. The Celtics lost Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals last night. They fell to the Miami Heat 123-116 to at the Garden. Game 2 will be tomorrow night here in Boston. The Red Sox beat the Seattle Mariners 12-3 to last night at Fenway. The Sox are off tonight. It'll eventually get sunny today. It's pretty sunny right now, actually. Temperatures will rise into the mid-60s, clear overnight, and it drops into the 40s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 70s. Cloudy showers and 60s on Saturday. Right now it's 40. Six degrees in Boston at 807. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include BritBox with the new season of Grace based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Anime Martinez in Culver City, California. New court filings show the National Guardsman who leaked classified information on a game chat platform was previously red flagged, but nothing was done. Massachusetts Air National Guard superiors allegedly knew months before his arrest that Airman Jack Teixeira was improperly accessing top secret information. This comes on the eve of a detention hearing currently set for Friday. Federal prosecutors are seeking to keep Teixeira in custody while he awaits charges for leaking classified documents online. WBUR's Ali Germanning joins us. Uh, Ali, so Jack Teixeira's superiors at the National Guard in Massachusetts supposedly knew something was going on with him? Yeah, it seems like Teixeira's bosses in the 102nd Intelligence Wing may have known he was accessing classified information he shouldn't have been. At least that's according to a court filing by prosecutors yesterday. And so back in the fall, this is months before the leaks became public and Teixeira was arrested, he was admonished twice for accessing classified material. In one instance, he was actually seen taking notes in a secure facility and putting that note in his pocket. And he was told by his superiors to, quote, cease and desist any deep dive 
lives into classified intelligence information and to focus on his own job. Apparently did not follow those instructions because in January he was spotted on a computer viewing intelligence information that he shouldn't have been looking at. It's not clear if Teixeira was disciplined or investigated further before his arrest in April. Two commanders of the unit have been suspended, though we don't know who they are and if they're the same ones who knew about Teixeira's alleged snooping. The Air Force is also conducting a broader investigation of the unit, and the 102nd Intelligence Wing has been stripped, for now, of its intelligence mission during that probe, and an Air Force spokesman declined to comment, citing the ongoing investigation. When did people start to get wise about what he was doing? Yeah, so this all started a few months ago when a bunch of secret military documents detailing everything from the war in Ukraine to U.S. spy operations surfaced on social media, and that really caused an international firestorm. And then in April, the suspected leaker was identified as Teixeira. He's a 21-year-old airman from Massachusetts with top-secret clearance working on Joint Base Cape Cod. And prosecutors say he posted these documents in a private chat on Discord, and from there, they spread more widely. And prosecutors, in their case, say he shared these documents to essentially brag to his online friends about the access he had. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been wondering why Jack Teixeira, specifically him, why he had such high security clearance. Right. Yeah, that's a big question that hasn't really been answered. Previous court filings have highlighted Teixeira's troubled past in high school. He was suspended for making racial threats and talking about weapons. And that was enough to stop the local police from actually initially granting him a gun permit. Yet even with that background, he was able to enlist with the National Guard and get a top secret clearance. And prosecutors, they highlighted some really disturbing remarks he made allegedly online, telling friends he wanted to kill a ton of people because that would be culling the weak-minded. Defense attorneys have said he's just a 21-year-old kid. He didn't realize what he posted online with a group of friends would end up spreading so widely. All right, so Teixeira still in police custody. What's next uh, specifically for him? So he faces up to 25 years in prison if convicted. He's been in jail since he was arrested last month, and a judge is weighing whether to keep him there pending trial. Prosecutors say he should stay there. He's a flight risk that he could work with a foreign adversary to flee. Defense attorneys say that scenario is just speculation and that Teixeira doesn't have any more classified information. They want him released to his father with no access to weapons on the Internet. And tomorrow, Teixeira is going to be expected in court for a second detention hearing, and the judge has indicated he'll decide then whether to release him. That's WBUR's Ali Jarmanning. Thanks uh, for breaking it down. Thanks so much. There will be two very different commencement ceremonies at New College of Florida this week. Some students at the Liberal Arts College in Sarasota are upset at the direction of the school under a new president and board of trustees appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis. So they're holding an alternative commencement. NPR's Greg Allen reports. For decades, New College of Florida drew little attention from state policymakers. It was the smallest and most poorly funded of the state's public universities. The Liberal Arts Honors University drew a diverse student population, attracted by its low tuition and its individualized curriculum, allowing undergraduates to design their own course of study. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis decided this year to put the school on a different path. So we are committed to the mission here. Uh, I, I would love for this to be, and I think it will be, Uh, the top classical liberal arts college in America. New College has always scored well in national rankings, rated fifth recently by U.S. News and World Report among public liberal arts schools. Governor DeSantis has another model in mind, one that has begun reshaping the school along the lines of Hillsdale College, a private Christian liberal arts institution in Michigan. In January, DeSantis replaced the board of trustees at New College with his own appointees, among them conservative educational activists and a Hillsdale professor. DeSantis's board 
board immediately made waves, firing the school's popular president and appointing Florida's former education commissioner interim president. More changes followed. The board eliminated the school's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, fired staff, including two LGBTQ faculty members, and denied tenure to several others. Students, faculty, and community members have opposed most of the changes. This week, when he appeared on campus, DeSantis made light of the protests. You know, I saw some of the protesters out there. I was a little disappointed. I was hoping for more, um, but, you know... The interim president, Richard Corcoran, has big plans for the school's transformation and the money to carry it out. Lawmakers allocated $50 million to help him reshape the school. Corcoran says the changes are already paying off. It's leading to what will be, and I'll say it publicly, record enrollment. We are on the verge of having the largest incoming class ever in the history of New College in just 90 days. Left out of much of the discussions and all of the decisions about the changes at New College are those most affected the students, and faculty. Casey Casey is a senior who's graduating soon. They're one of a group of students who organized an alternative to the university's official commencement ceremony. I think it started as simple as, I don't want to shake this person's hand, this new president's hand. Students and alumni raised more than $100,000 for their alternative event. The commencement speaker is Maya Wiley, head of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Casey says one of the most distressing things about the school's new leadership is the message that's been sent to students. We have board members who are actively telling students that if they aren't mission aligned, that they should leave the school. They intentionally are trying to remove people for their identities and their beliefs. Casey is graduating and has begun applying for theater apprenticeships. They're worried, though, that DeSantis' takeover of New College is part of a larger effort to influence the next generation. They want you to be complacent. They want you to think like they think so that you won't go out in the world and make a change. And New College students are the people who will go out in the world and make a change. The alternative graduation event scheduled tonight comes a day before the school's official commencement. The speaker of that event is Dr. Scott Atlas, former President Trump's advisor on COVID. Greg Allen, NPR News. All right, there's a standoff happening right now in Pakistan. Security forces have surrounded the home of the former prime minister, Imran Khan. Yeah, they're threatening to storm it, accusing Khan of sheltering a few dozen men they call terrorists for their roles in recent protests. This is the latest in a political crisis that has engulfed Pakistan for over a year. NPR's Dia Hadid is in Islamabad. She's been following all this. Uh, bring us up to speed. What's happening right now? Well, A, the countdown is on. A senior government official warns they'll storm Khan's home after a deadline ends this afternoon, and Khan is telling media to come and film it. The fear is this could ignite more violence in Pakistan, like what happened last week when paramilitary forces briefly detained Khan. That triggered unprecedented attacks by protesters on army installations. Now, officials claim Khan is sheltering some of those protesters. Last night, as those forces began surrounding Khan's home, I spoke to him on Zoom, and he says he believes there's a plan to kill him, but that he's staying put. This is where I will uh, live and die. You know, I will be here till my last breath. There's no question of me leaving my country. Wow, sounds very, very tense. Let's step back a bit for a second, Dio. What triggered all this? 
Right. Well, Khan was the prime minister until April last year when the military signaled they no longer supported his rule. And then he lost a no confidence vote in parliament. The military here is the most powerful institution in the country. They were widely seen as propelling Khan to power until they had a falling out. But Khan's been fighting back, staging protests, court challenges, communicating over social media. He wants early elections. And if they were held, he'd probably win. But Khan's facing a swath of corruption cases. And if he's found guilty, he'll likely be disqualified from running. And Khan says that's the point of this whole crisis. He says Pakistan's army chief and the ruling coalition have decided he can't come back as prime minister. He, along with these... uh... 12-party coalition have made up their mind that whatever happens, Imran Khan can't win the elections. So it sounds like a political fight, but you've been reporting that there have been bigger ramifications. Yeah, this has caused the economy to unravel. Inflation soaring, millions are going hungry. This is a nuclear-armed country with 240 million people. It has a problem with extremism and now this political crisis. And it even intensified again this week with a crackdown against Khan's supporters and advisers. Some of them are being released from detention, only to step out of courthouses and be taken again. And the army says it's going to use secret military trials to prosecute some of them. So this is Khan again. I mean, it's a total banana republic right now. Are we headed for an out-and-out martial law? All right, so what's the government saying? For now, the government supports this crackdown. They say Khan's dangerous. The army, though, hasn't spoken to journalists yet. But one analyst tells me the military has turned on nearly every Pakistani prime minister once they don't do their bidding. That analyst's name is Musharraf Zaidi, and he says this crisis is squarely the army's fault. This is something that the military is going to have to seriously consider what it's doing to any potential the country has left. But few people are hopeful this standoff between the army and Khan will end anytime soon. All right, that's NPR's Dia Hadid in Islamabad. Thanks. You're welcome, A. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for being with WBUR on this Thursday morning. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, why artificial intelligence is emerging as a sticking point in resolving the Hollywood writer strike. It's 819. WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Parts of rural America are some of the most affected by climate change, but they're also a key part of the Republican base, which can put those who live and farm there at odds with climate activists. I always wondered how we got to be the bad guy. I don't, uh, I can remember when we were younger, when you're considered a farmer, you're considered a conservationist. Farms, politics, and climate on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny with a high around 65 today. We'll have clear skies tonight and temperatures fall to a low around 46. Tomorrow we end the week with a mostly sunny day and a high near 72. Right now it's 47 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. 
Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Subaru, with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faltid. Hollywood writers are on their third week of a strike against major studios. They want higher wages and more residuals from the streaming platforms. Another issue they're still stuck on is the issue of using artificial intelligence in writing films and TV shows. NPR's Mandelit Del Barco reports on the fears of screenwriters as they look to a possible future with AI in the writer's room and the perhaps surprising ways that some writers are embracing it. Movie and TV writers have envisioned AI as evil, as in The Terminator. I'll be back. Or traitorous, as in the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Or empathetic, like in the film Her. Are these feelings even real? Or are they just programming? In real life, some Hollywood writers on strike say they're worried studio executives could eventually replace them with AI. That's one concern for comedy writer Miranda Berman, who picketed outside Paramount Pictures this week. This is only the beginning. If they take writers' jobs, they'll take everybody else's jobs, too. And also in movies, you know, like, the the robots kill everyone in the end. On the picket line outside Universal Studios, TV writer Lynette Tichelle said she's worried studios will hire fewer writers to simply doctor up whatever the machines come up with. We're coming back fighting so that Alexis and, and whatnot aren't writing our stories. We're not here to rewrite a machine. <laughs> We're not against the use, you know, if, if we can find a way to be reasonable, but they cannot be the genesis of any creation. We create these worlds. Tichelle says she recently read a script written by ChatGPT. And it was terrifying. Now, was the quality there? No, absolutely not. The structure was there, so they understand the structure of what to do, but it had no depth. It had no spirit. It didn't have nuance. It wouldn't understand how to handle race, certain jokes, things like that. The Writers Guild of America, which called for the strike, says writers want more regulation of AI. For example, bans on studios using it to write or rewrite things like stories, treatments, and screenplays, or even write the source material that human writers would adapt for the screen. They also don't want the writer's work to be used to train AI. Meanwhile, the studios, represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, say that the use of AI raises hard, important creative and legal questions for everyone and that it requires more discussion. They also point out that the current agreement already defines writers as people, so AI-generated material wouldn't be eligible for writing credits. During a recent earnings call, Disney CEO Bob Iger told investors that AI development presents opportunities and benefits to the company. We're already starting to use AI to create some efficiencies and ultimately to better serve consumers. But it's also clear that AI is going to be highly disruptive and it could be extremely difficult to manage, particularly from an IP management perspective. AI experts and writers say the new technology isn't yet able to write a good script. But AI is starting to crop up in Hollywood productions, and some are embracing it as a tool. 
Writers from the show Mrs. Davis used algorithms to generate episode titles. And as part of the promotion for their show, co-creators Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof ran the Mrs. Davis premise through what's called an AI visualizer program. Computer-generated images popped up when they typed prompts into a keyboard. And the prompt would go a little something like this. Mrs. Davis is a series about a nun, Sister Simone. She's a great nun, but she's also cool. She's an awesome renegade nun who rides a motorcycle. With a helmet. Always, always wear a helmet. Always, And yes. the nun has to find the holy grail in order to destroy this AI. Other Hollywood writers say they're using AI in the form of language learning models to come up with ideas or spin out potential plot lines or develop characters. I'm using it as a brainstorming tool and as a research aid. TV writer Matt Nix says he tested several AI programs to give him episode ideas for his show True Lies. He says he recently pitched a new show and needed to research how a particular governmental agency worked. Which you could do through a search engine, but it's a lot easier to do it with AI because immediately after asking, okay, so what is the internal structure of this organization, you can then start building on that and saying, okay, so... Let's say there's a character named Joe who has this position, and let's say there's a character named Tina who has this position. How frequently would Joe and Tina be interacting? Nick says when it comes to brainstorming ideas, if you make a single request, an AI program is likely to spit out the most cliched version of what it's seen before. But if you play with it and you say, no, no, I don't want just one idea for this. I want five ideas for this. Then it has to dig a little bit deeper and give you the less likely ideas. Nix has been playing around with an AI app called Pickaxe. With it, writers can generate written scenes by describing their plots and characters in a text box. Pickaxe was built by Mike Joya and Ian Eck, who run a film and media production company. Joya says screenwriters have told them Pickaxe is a helpful tool. To do like 80% of the work for them, like get around writer's block generate like a B-minus version of a scene or a conversation that they can then spruce up. It's a far way from being able to write screenplays. So I don't think many writers have to worry about their jobs. Eck agrees. It's the creatives that are actually getting more empowered because you still need a creative mind. You need taste. You need to know what makes interesting drama and interesting characters, what makes a story good and what makes it human. That sensibility is not coming from the studio heads. I tested out Pickaxe to see what it would come up with for the opening of a movie about an NPR reporter doing a story about how Hollywood writers are using AI. Interior. Script AI office day. A young writer turns around and smiles. We input data about what makes a successful movie, plot structure, genre conventions, character traits, and our algorithm generates a fully formed screenplay. Suddenly alarms blare. Red lights flash. The algorithm. It's gone rogue. Panic ensues as Mandalit looks around in horror. The camera pans to show other workers screaming and running. It's generating plot lines that make no sense, characters that contradict themselves. We have to stop it before it's too late. The technology is still developing, but so far even the AI-generated script envisions the bots running amok, just like all those sci-fi movies we've seen before. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News.
This is NPR News. You're starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition in about five minutes, we hear from former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan as security forces surround his home in preparation of Khan's arrest. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russia's nearly 15-month war in Ukraine is expected to dominate this week's G7 summit in Japan. President Biden is in Hiroshima for several days of talks. Earlier today, Biden met with Japan's Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, where they discussed stronger defense ties and threats posed by China. The president is canceling stops in Australia and Papua New Guinea after the summit so he can return to the U.S. amid ongoing negotiations over the debt ceiling. Australia's former prime minister and current ambassador to the U.S., Kevin Rudd, says that move is understandable. This is just one of those things that happens, and we get the intensity of the debate on the future of the debt ceiling. Rudd was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. A resolution that seeks to expel Republican Congressman George Santos of New York is being referred to the House Ethics Committee. California Democrat Robert Garcia introduced the resolution in hopes of forcing a vote in the House. The referral is being criticized by House Democrats as a cop-out. Santos is a first-term member of the House who's facing 13 charges, including lying to Congress about his finances and embezzling campaign money. I have a right, a constitutional right to defend myself, and I will do that. Santos denies the charges. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston City Councilors want to give candidates in upcoming elections more time to file to run. That's because the council is still trying to come up with a new map of districts. A federal judge threw out previously approved districts earlier this month. Councilors pushed back the filing deadline yesterday from the end of May to the end of June. State lawmakers still have to sign off on that move. There are significantly more cases of injuries and abuse happening inside Massachusetts hospitals since the start of the pandemic. That's according to state health data obtained by the Boston Globe. It found the number of serious reportable incidents involving patients and staff rose more than 50 percent between 2018 and 2022. The Massachusetts Nurses Association says those cases are a result of understaffing caused by pandemic-related burnout. The state's highest court says defendants charged with a crime after a stop-and-frisk encounter may have new grounds to appeal. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtell has more on a court ruling from earlier this week. Drivers already have the ability to appeal charges on the basis of racial discrimination. This latest ruling of the Supreme Judicial Court applies that to pedestrians. It may also have broader implications. 
BU Law Professor Jerry Leonard says the decision could be good for defendants, but a lot may be left to a judge's discretion. There is a change in the law that would be promising for defendants challenging their arrests and prosecutions on the basis in part of race. But there's lots of room for the courts to say, yeah, that's a good idea in the abstract, but we're not actually finding racial discrimination in this case. Leonard says the ruling is part of a larger attempt by the SJC to protect against systemic discrimination in policing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The Celtics lost the opener of the Eastern Conference Finals last night. They fell to the Miami Heat 123-116 at the Garden. Game two will be tomorrow night here in Boston. The Red Sox routed the Seattle Mariners 12-3 last night at Fenway. The Sox are off tonight. In your forecast, clear skies with highs in the mid-60s today. It falls to the mid-40s tonight. Then we warm back up to the low 70s tomorrow under mostly sunny skies. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. Deutsche Bank has agreed to pay $75 million to settle a proposed class action lawsuit that accuses the German banking giant of facilitating sex trafficking by Jeffrey Epstein. The disgraced financier died by suicide while in federal custody awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges in 2019. Dozens of Epstein accusers are expected to get payouts. For more on this, we're joined by Wall Street Journal Enterprise reporter Khadija Safdar. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So what did this lawsuit, it was filed last year in New York, accuse Deutsche Bank of doing? The lawsuit essentially accused Deutsche Bank of enabling Epstein to recruit uh, and groom hundreds of underage girls and young women um, by allowing them to use the bank to pay the victims and essentially turning a blind eye when he was paying victims in cash. What's Deutsche Bank saying about this? Our understanding is the bank did not admit to wrongdoing as part of this settlement. The bank declined to comment on the terms of the settlement, but emphasized that they have invested more than 4 billion euros to bolster their controls and increase their size of their workforce dedicated to fighting financial crime. And they made the point that they've made considerable progress in recent years to remedy some of the past issues that they've had. Now, Epstein accusers, a lot of them have said they did never get justice, right? He died before going to trial. How are they reacting to the proposed settlement Um, right now? I'm not sure yet. We actually just broke this news last night, so Mm -hmm. I haven't gotten a chance to see what the reaction is. So I guess we'll just find out more today and in the weeks ahead. And how much money are accusers expected to get? So eligible accusers will receive $75,000 as a minimum. And then depending on the circumstances, they can get a payment of upwards of $5 million. 
Now, this isn't the only lawsuit that's targeting banks used by Epstein, right? You're right, it isn't. The same lawyers, David Boies and Brad Edwards, have also sued J.P. Morgan. And um, then the U.S. Virgin Islands filed a similar suit against the bank for facilitating Epstein's sex trafficking ring. Khadija Safdar of The Wall Street Journal, thanks for sharing your reporting with us, and we'll continue to watch this. Thank you. President Biden is in Japan for a meeting of the G7, some of the world's wealthiest nations. High up on the group's agenda is how to tackle China's government's increasing use of economic retaliation against countries that question or challenge its policies. As NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports exactly how the G7 can counter this so-called economic coercion is yet to be decided. In late 2020, relations between Australia and China were already deeply strained when Canberra called for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID. The reaction from China was swift and costly. China turned around and restricted imports of a number of Australian products, including barley, wine and coal, and did this even with a free trade agreement with Australia. Wendy Cutler is vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and a former negotiator with the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. She says this is a classic case of China using economic coercion. This really refers to a practice of China where it imposes restrictions or punishes countries for not aligning with its foreign policy objectives. And it does this in a very non-transparent and very arbitrary manner. China's use of economic coercion is increasing, says Bonnie Glazer, the head of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund. We've seen this used against um, Japan, the Philippines, uh, South Korea, Mongolia, Sweden, uh, Canada, uh, Taiwan. I mean, the list is really very, very long. And so I believe that we have to come up with ways to actually make China pay a price. Otherwise, I think it will be difficult to deter China. Josh Lipsky, senior director of the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center, says there isn't consensus yet amongst the G7 on how to push back against China's use of economic coercion. The U.S. appears to be pushing for a more robust response. Lipsky believes the G7 could come up with a mechanism to help countries hurt by China. Meaning that let's say China were to target a particular country, whether in the G7, Uh, or not in the G7, there would be a sort of coordinating body that would say, we need to act in unison on this issue and make sure that we provide economic aid to this country together and we don't undercut each other. Former trade negotiator Cutler says that mechanism could help small and medium-sized countries that China targets. And those countries are often reluctant to make a big deal of it or to um, take China on in fear of retribution and escalation and even being subject to even more retaliatory measures. And so if a country then feels that it has the support of the larger group of countries, it may be more willing to call China out. 
China says it's hypocritical to call it out for economic coercion, given the fact that the U.S. has placed tariffs on Chinese goods and sanctioned thousands of individuals and entities around the world. The German Marshall Fund's Glazer doesn't buy that. At least we are imposing sanctions based on our own legal processes, our own regulatory systems. We do it in a transparent, candid way. In the case of China, they are completely opaque. They have never admitted that they have taken any of these coercive measures. There's no guarantee the G7 will reach a consensus on China's use of economic coercion by the time the summit in Japan wraps up Sunday. Jackie Northam, NPR News. Some communities are resisting efforts by New York City Mayor Eric Adams to bus migrants to their town, saying they don't have the money to support the new arrivals. That story later today on All Things Considered. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, Massachusetts's highest court. Apologies here. Just one moment. We learn about two Boston school districts that are trying to address the teacher shortage by recruiting abroad with longer-term work visas. It's 8.43. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Mid-60s today under sunny skies. It stays clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny Friday in low 70s. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, trade unions say they're adding tens of thousands of apprenticeship positions over the next decade. The paid programs train and license workers in fields like carpentry and plumbing. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports that Massachusetts employers are funding some of these new positions with federal money. Shetan Green apprenticed as a pipe fitter. It took five years, but it was paid and eventually led to a six-figure job. Now Green is working to recruit more recent high school grads to apprentice like he did. There's not a job you could go in with zero skills and get paid above a minimum wage. I started off as an apprentice knowing nothing, started in at 20 bucks, and every six months after that I put in my work, I put in my hours, I go to school. I'm getting raises at least twice a year, so I think people need to know these things. Governor Maura Healy's budget proposes additional state funding for registered apprenticeship programs. The legislature still has to approve it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinhoi. This is a busy time of year for Massachusetts school districts. It's when they try to fill all their teacher positions. Increasingly, the odds are stacked against them. This year, about 48 percent of schools in the Northeast reported being understaffed. Now one Massachusetts district is trying out a possible new solution, recruiting outside the country under a long-term work visa program. WBUR's Carrie Young reports. It's early afternoon in Juliana Santos's fourth grade class in Framingham. Today, the students in her Portuguese bilingual class at Potter Road Elementary School are learning about similes and metaphors. Santos has been a teacher for 10 years, but she's new to Massachusetts. She moved here from Sao Paulo, Brazil last fall under a recent district initiative that recruits experienced teachers from that country to work in Framingham's Portuguese bilingual classrooms. Everton Vargas da Costa, the district's talent acquisition coordinator, says the school system tried to hire teachers locally, but they're in short supply. If teachers are hard to find nowadays, bilingual teachers are harder. So when we started expanding our dual language programs, we realized we're going to have to recruit overseas because we cannot find that talent here. Hiring foreign teachers isn't a new practice. Dozens of districts in Massachusetts use a more temporary visa known as a J-1, which has a hard five-year cap. But Framingham wants to keep these teachers long-term. It just started sponsoring H-1B visas, which applies to foreign workers with specialized skills and opens the door to permanent residency. It takes about six months, lots of paperwork, and around $5,000 to get each new hire through the process. Larry Walby, the principal at Potter Road, says it's a complex process. I just distinctly remember being on the end of so many conversations where, oh, this might fall through. Okay, I don't think it's going to. It's going to work. Okay, it might fall through. Okay, we'll make it happen. Santos moved here with her husband and young son. She said the cultural transition was surprisingly easy. Framingham is home to the largest Brazilian community in the state and among the largest in the country. About a quarter of the district's students speak Portuguese at home with their families, which is why recruited teachers from Brazil might have a positive impact here. The fact that I came from Brazil is way easier to understand where these students come from, where they are at now, academically speaking. This year, Framingham schools sponsored eight H-1B visas for elementary school teachers. The district plans to keep up its recruitment in Brazil next year, too. Again, talent acquisition coordinator Everton Vargas da Costa. It's how to get qualified teachers in front of the kids. It's about the students, right? How to make them have the experience of having bilingual education of high quality, of excellence. So we need to make those efforts. Framingham appears to be one of just a few districts in Massachusetts that are sponsoring longer-term work visas for teachers. The city of Boston recently began a pilot program to sponsor work authorizations like H-1B visas for current city employees in hard-to-staff positions. This includes teachers in Boston public schools. Yusufi Vali is the mayor's deputy chief of staff. It's a win for the city because our residents really expect excellent services. And we can't deliver excellent services when we have a labor shortage. As of May, there were around 330 open teacher positions in Boston public schools. 
Jessica Tang, the president of the Boston Teachers Union, is supportive of the effort right now. It's quite competitive normally to get a position in Boston public schools. But I think in this current climate where we clearly have a staffing shortage, and we're not even talking about just educators, we're in a very different kind of context right now. Tang stresses that sponsoring longer-term work visas should be one of many strategies to bolster teaching staff. She adds the district should also focus on programs aimed at building up a local pipeline of teachers. Officials in Boston and Framingham say this is a multi-pronged effort. But school leaders hope that together, these programs can put qualified teachers in every classroom. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. are one day closer to Friday with WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, online gambling companies are waking in record revenue, but old-fashioned brick-and-mortar casinos still bring in the most cash. The Marketplace Morning Report looks at why. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Commercial real estate is cratering. More than 20% of office space vacant in cities like Los Angeles and Chicago as workers stay remote. Nationwide, vacancy rates are higher than they were at the height of the 2008 financial crisis. We've had a ton of busts since the 1980s, but what we're seeing right now is something that we really haven't seen in decades at all. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. President Biden is in Japan for the G7 summit, where leaders are expected to discuss Ukraine and China. Prosecutors say officials knew Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira mishandled classified information before he was arrested for leaking documents. And Montana has become the first state to ban the social media app TikTok. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. Another cool day today with temperatures rising only to the mid-60s, but it'll be sunny. Skies stay clear tonight and it falls to the mid-40s. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston at 851. Americans are opening up their wallets at casinos. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where you can find a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. For Marketplace, I'm Nova Safo, in for David Brancaccio. It's earnings season and companies reporting first quarter results have generally managed to beat expectations, even if those expectations were quite low. The gaming industry, meanwhile, is doing record business. Casino operator Wynn Resorts reported a 50% increase in revenues in the first quarter. MGM Resorts was up 34%. 
In fact, new data from the American Gaming Association, the trade group for the legal gambling industry, shows revenues totaled almost $17 billion in just the first three months of the year. Marketplace's Henry Epp has more. The first full year of the pandemic was pretty rough for casinos, says Casey Clark at the American Gaming Association. But then in 2021, they set a revenue record. Which was bested in 2022 with another record year. And now Q1 of 23 shows another quarterly record. One factor that might be drawing people into casinos, all of the advertising for online sports betting that seems to be everywhere these days. Rachel Volberg is a professor at UMass Amherst who studies the casino industry. It may have increased the amount of gambling that regular or heavy gamblers are doing. This uptick is happening even as Americans face a lot of economic uncertainty. But Leah Nauer, the director of the Center for Gambling Studies at Rutgers University, says that's not surprising. That's a time when revenue actually does go up because people mistakenly feel that gambling can be an income-generating activity. The risk, Nauer says, is that more people could develop gambling problems. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. While markets in Europe and Asia are up, here it's a mixed picture. S&P and NASDAQ futures are up, but just barely. And the Dow future is actually down 30 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is up at 3.63%. President Biden is in Japan for a summit of the group of seven major economies. Two countries which are not represented there, China and Russia, are expected to dominate the agenda. The G7 countries are to discuss what they call China's economic coercion, and they're expected to tighten sanctions on Russia. San Francisco has reached an agreement with Walgreens to settle charges that it improperly filled opioid prescriptions. The city attorney there says it's the biggest award to a municipality in a case involving opioids. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has the details. The $230 million settlement came after a federal judge said Walgreens, quote, substantially contributed to the opioid epidemic in San Francisco. San Francisco City Attorney David Chu says Walgreens didn't always check to be sure opioid prescriptions were legitimate. Walgreens filled a significant volume of illegitimate opioid prescriptions. In doing so, Walgreens contributed directly to opioid diversion, and made the opioid epidemic in San Francisco worse than it otherwise would have been. In a statement, Walgreens says there is no admission of fault in this settlement and it disputes liability. The company adds, quote, Our thoughts are with those impacted by this tragic crisis. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab offers a modern approach to wealth management with personalized financial planning to meet an investor's specific needs and the flexibility to adapt as those needs change with time. Learn more at schwab.com plan. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. A report on the state of preschool education shows public spending on preschool has stagnated for two decades. That's if you account for inflation. There's growing momentum in states to change this, to publicly fund universal pre-K. Still, progress has been slow. Reporter Ali Budner has the details. The National Institute on Early Education Research at Rutgers University has studied preschool programs in the U.S. for two decades. The 20-year perspective is somewhat startling. Steve Barnett is with the Institute and helped author the latest report. 
spending per child is about where it was in 2002. He says there are consequences to that. About half the kids in poverty still don't enroll in a preschool program of any kind, public or private, at three and four. Barnett says this will come back to haunt states when those three- and four-year-olds grow up. Studies have shown that preschool can improve people's lives long-term. But Barnett points out that a number of states do provide universal pre-K. Several more have passed new laws to get it going, and others are exploring it, including New Jersey. A third of New Jersey's school districts already offer preschool for everyone. Wendy Rodriguez lives in one of those districts, and her four-year-old attends school for free. They teach him how to do his name. He know all the letters, and I'm very impressed. Rodriguez has a degree in early education herself, but she's currently unemployed. So when she found out her son's pre-K education would be free... I was so excited. Very excited. If she had to pay for the preschool, her son probably wouldn't be able to go. Rodriguez is looking for work as a preschool teacher, but she says the pay is often just too low. And that's one of the challenges for many pre-K funding programs. New Mexico voters last year approved a ballot measure to boost funding for early education. With this new funding, we are able to build salary parity into what we pay pre-K programs. Sarah Michelson is with New Mexico's Early Childhood Education and Care Department. She says there's still a long way to go before the state gets to universal pre-K. But she says the state has made it a priority because... Families are at their economically weakest when they have young children. And Michelson says that's when kids' brain development is critical. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. Montana's governor has signed a bill banning TikTok in the state. It's the first such law in the country and comes amid concerns from state and federal officials that China uses TikTok to spy on Americans. TikTok says the new law violates the First Amendment. A lot can happen in a day when it comes to the economy and all its moving parts, and we've got you covered here on The Morning Report and in the evening when you can check out Marketplace with Kai Rizdahl, who I just spoke to, by the way. He's up and at it. Listen on public radio stations, podcast, or at Marketplace.org. I'm Nova Safo with The Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And Ocean State Job Lock, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.